We're um, finishing up the study in Titus. I got to stop. This song that was just up there, Isaiah forty-two eight. It's um, it's based on Isaiah forty-two. There's a really cool thing in there, and it was just kind of consuming me while I was standing there. That that passage says that um, the Messiah, when he comes, he's he's breaking the chains of the captives to bring sight to the blind. And there, and what he didn't have on the screen is that the next thing it says. When the Messiah arrives, he will bring healing in his wings. That's part of that passage. Here's the coolest part of that. When Jesus is walking through Samaria, no, it wasn't Samaria, it was, uh, no, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so Jesus is walking, okay, and he's got his rabbi garb on. Now, rabbis always wore this cloak that hung from their body, and they had little tassels on the ends of their cloak. And when they would spread their arms it would be called the wings of the rabbi, okay? So here's the cool part. Remember the story, if you're familiar with church and and you grew up in church, remember the story where the woman sneaks up behind Jesus and grabs a hold of his tassel? She's grabbing hold of his wings. And so when Isaiah 42 says there's be healing in his wings, you see fulfillment in that story. That's just for free. It just kind of caught me while we were singing that, okay? All right, today we're... we're, we're, um, by the way, if you're new to New Hope, I do that all the time, so just get used to it, okay? Um, we're finishing up Titus today. Uh, this is the seventh week in this, this letter to Titus, and um, I had someone this week ask me, um, who's just started coming a couple weeks ago, they're new to New Hope, and they weren't familiar with why we were doing this, and they said, why are you studying this letter to Titus? What's the significance of that? And at that moment, I realized I did the outline for you way back on the first week, when we installed the elders and we studied chapter 1, but I didn't do it since then. So if you grabbed your notes this morning out there on the table as you came in, you see the very first thing are chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. What's going on here in this letter? Why is this so important to New Hope? Why should we be studying this? So first of all, chapter 1 is the qualifications of church leadership. And so you remember that first Sunday, we looked at the qualifications of elders, who gets to be an elder, and specifically their theology and their personal character. And then chapter 2 was the character and the conduct of the church among ourselves as we interact with each other. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, how we behave around each other. And then chapter 3 is the character and the conduct of the church before the unbelieving world, what we're wrapping up with today, how your friends, how your neighbors, how your students, fellow students at school, coworkers see you. That's what's wrapped into chapter 3. And so as we wrap this up today, we see that God really has a plan for strong churches. He knows what he wants it to look like. And he kind of outlined it for us in chapter 3. Here's what a strong church looks like. So not that we're strong just in preaching and not that it's just strong in our emphasis of loving towards each other, but we're also representing the power of the transformation in Christ. We're living it out When people look at us, they see what a transformed biblical community looks like, people who are consumed with the power of Christ. So that's what you really see in Titus when you look at it. And all of it for this purpose, so that the world is attracted to Christ because we're told we're the fragrance of Jesus. When the world looks at us, they see Jesus. And so that's why Titus is outlined the way it is. So here's where we're going to jump in this morning at verse 9 of chapter 3, if you have your Bibles. That's where we left off at last week. And this is a really short teaching, so we thought we'd put the teaching in the front and then wrap up the service with a couple more songs. So this is going to go pretty quickly, but let's look here at verse 9, first of all. Titus chapter 3, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, 
and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Apparently, it's really evident that this church in Crete came into contact with false teachers. They somehow had been exposed to false truth, and so they're told to avoid it. It's a contrast between that and everything we looked at last week, all the good things we looked at in the beginning of chapter 3, and now it's saying avoid false teachers, get away from foolish controversies, because it produces no spiritual benefit. There's no purpose in it. The word that's used here is peristeme. Look with me up on the screen and you'll see the definition for it when it says avoid. The word peristeme is going around someone or something to avoid it, aloof to keep away from or shun. You might be familiar with in the Amish community in which someone is shunned. That's where this word comes from, peristeme. Meaning, if, for example, if you're in modern America, you're walking down a metropolitan city sidewalk and you come across an area where there's a barricade in front of you, and some work crew has just poured wet concrete. They put the barricade there because they want you to peristome. They want you to avoid it, to go around the wet concrete. Don't walk in it. That's literally what this is saying. Avoid it. Stay away from that area. Don't even go into it. And this is written in the imperative in the Greek, meaning constantly. Stay away from foolish controversies. That's the word that's used here, foolish controversies. So let's use that word controversy first. What is that? The word is zethesis, and this is the definition for it on the screen in Greek, a searching, properly the act or a question, to seek or search after. Now that sounds like a really good thing, doesn't it? Zethesis meaning something that you're pursuing. In ancient days, in historical days of the early church, zethesis meant a philosophical inquiry, something you were looking deeply into. And so Jesus used this word we see in Matthew 7. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you, zethesis, or seek, there it is, and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. So zethesis is an investigation of theological things, thinking and inquiring, trying to know the mind of God. However, in this case, there's a different intent here because this word came to be associated not just with inquiry but also with debate and dissension and arguments because the zetasis, the thinking process, would lead to debates and arguments. Here's an example of how that's used. You'll see it in Acts 15 up on the screen. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and zetasis, there it is, and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. You see what's going on here? Individuals were coming and saying, false teaching, you need to do this plus Jesus Christ to be saved. You need to do works plus Jesus. And Paul was getting frustrated, so he had great debate and dissension with them because they were bringing out something that wasn't true. This, in this context here, foolish controversies means anything but seeking the truth. These individuals weren't. They're false teachers. They're individuals who are trying to defend their personal position. You know people like that who can't look at Scripture the same way you do? 
because they're trying to defend their personal position. Rather than accepting the truth of Scripture, they'd rather look at what Uncle Ed said or what Grandma said, placing opinion or tradition higher than the truth of God. When God says, don't put anything before my truth, no matter what's been passed on to you. Here's an example for you. When I was a child and I was going to church with my mom constantly, I was asking my grandma if she was a believer in Jesus Christ. I was concerned for her. And so I would constantly say to grandma, are you a Christian, grandma? She would always push me away and and not want to engage. One time she really got fed up with me asking her. And I said, grandma, are you a Christian? And she said, Mark, shh, we don't talk about things like that. They're very personal. Now, that was grandma's way of dodging the question. Now, is that, is that a position you can support from Scripture? Absolutely not. That's contrary to Scripture. But yet my brother was listening to her say that to me. And through his teenage years and into his 20s, my brother said, we don't talk about our faith in Christ. It's very personal. It's something we keep to ourselves. Hey, where do you get that from? That doesn't come from Scripture. That's personal opinion. Okay? Scripture says, thus saith the Lord, I'm here to save you. Talk to people about it. Get it out there, okay? So we find individuals who arrive at their personal position, and they have put that opinion above the truth of God. That's what we're talking about that's going on here, these foolish controversies. So here's the word foolish. I want you to see the definition for it. The word up on the screen is moros, stupid, moron, dull, as if shut up heedless, blockhead, absurd. Did you know that was in the Bible? God's saying you're a moron if you reject the things that are the truths of Scripture. You take any position other than Scripture, and you are moros. It's absurd. Why would you reject the truth? So no matter how brilliant some people appear to be, even scholars No matter how brilliant they appear to be, if they can't back up their conversation with the truths of Scripture, they're moros. They're foolish. It's absolute nonsense. What does that look like today? Here in our world that we live in 2011, this last week, Michael sent me an article from CNN. Somebody had posted an article online. It was actually an editorial. A professor at one of the Ivy League schools out on the East Coast who is a professor of theology arrived at a new interpretation of the book of Genesis. Now, anytime a professor from one of the Ivy League schools arrives at a new interpretation of Genesis, you want to go, wait, time out. What am I reading, okay? So this is in CNN, and it was written in a beautiful expose. I mean, the words were big, $10 words. It was really well written. This person obviously had taken a lot of time to construct this article. But ultimately, this is what it boiled down to. This professor said, after studying creation in the book of Genesis, she came to the conclusion that when God said he created male and female, male and female created he them, he actually only created one person with both genders encapsulated within them. That he created a a different species of humanity. And eventually, as man fail and man fell, God divided them into two parts, and that's how we see Eve coming out of Adam. But in the beginning, even Adam were one person. What they were trying to do was present a personal agenda on the issue of homosexuality, and they wanted to defend their position. So therefore, they constructed this big argument based on the book of Genesis. Now, you would look at it and say, it's moros. 
How do you come up with that? That's not what Scripture says. So that's what it looks like today. We have to look at everything that pops up and say, does it line up with the truth of Scripture? Can I support it from God's Word? Because this is a really formidable group. Many times it is scholars. They're well-educated people. And we think we should give them the credence due to them. But instead, you need to back it up. Can you support it from Scripture? Because of what's said in the Bible. Look with me up on the screen. 1 Timothy 6.3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved minds and deprived of the truth. Don't you love it? Scripture just lays it right out there. I mean, it couldn't be more black and white than that. There it is. So we get verse 10. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now, what's a factious man? We use this word in our English language today. The word is heretic. Look with me up on the screen, and you'll see the Greek for it. Heretikos, a schismatic, self-chosen viewpoint. So we're seeing an individual, when it says reject a factious man, is someone who's arrived at their own opinion, and they've exalted their own opinion, their own viewpoint, over the truth of God's Word. So Scripture says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Why? Because they cause division within the church. Again, God has a plan for his church. This is the way he wants it to look. He lays it out in the book of Titus. And he says, if you have someone who's teaching heretical truth, reject them after a first and second warning. Don't let them be part of it. So I see a couple responsibilities that we have here within this verse. First of all, we've got a twofold responsibility to admonish someone. That's the word warning that's used there. It's actually nuthesia, and it means warning with instruction. You're warning someone, and we're talking about church discipline here. You're disciplining someone because you need to admonish them. Literally, when you see the word admonish in Scripture, this is what it means, to put into the mind to help someone in a very clear biblical way understand the truths of Scripture so they get clear biblical instruction. And you see that it's written in the present tense. It says, he is sinning in your Bible. It doesn't mean past tense, not that he committed a sin, but he's actively carrying out this activity. He is sinning. It's a present tense verb there. So what happens when there's no response? This individual gets the first warning, second admonition, and they pay no attention to it. It tells us what to do. Such a person is twisted and perverted, so you reject them. That's our next responsibility. That's the reason for the action. Because literally, some people are impervious to biblical admonition. They hold their personal viewpoints of Uncle Ed or Grandma so strongly, they will not receive biblical admonition. And Scripture says they're twisted The word that's used there for perverted is ekastrepho, and it literally means turned inside out, something that's the reverse of what it's supposed to be. Here's how it's used in Romans 16, 17. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech... They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. You catch that? 
They don't come across as dummies. They're not inarticulate. They have smooth, flattering speech. Now, here's how it's also used in 2 Thessalonians. Take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame, and yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So church discipline, when we carry it out, and especially if we have to in the future at New Hope, we haven't had to up to this point, we're only a few years old, but if we ever have to carry out church discipline, we see that it's supposed to be done in a way that is loving, in a way that is gracious, and always administered in humility, absolutely every time, for this purpose to be restorative and redemptive, to bring unity to the body. Because we're told this in 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Again, it's all because God wants unity. He wants His church to be single-minded about one goal. What's our opportunity and our objective? to be fragrant to the world around us so that they'd be attracted to Christ. So we get this guideline here. When you admonish someone, do it lovingly. So let's move on to verse 12. We get to see a little bit of the personality of Paul here now, what his characteristics were like. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So Paul apparently has already selected a replacement for Titus. And he says, Titus, I got your ticket. It's time for you to leave. You can get out of there after everything's established. I'm going to send these two guys to you, Artemis or Tychicus, so you get your ticket out of Crete. We don't know anything about Artemis. Scripture doesn't fill us in. This is the only place he's ever mentioned. Archaeologically, we know nothing. But Tychicus, we understand, traveled with Paul a lot. And he was such a faithful, good, supportive worker to Paul that Paul obviously thought he did a really great job and he's willing to send him to Crete. He's going to send him to the hard-duty place, let him do his time on this island and help shore up the church. Now, we get to see what a team player Paul is because he's always watching out for his people. So when the replacements arrive, Titus is supposed to leave and head to this region called Nicopolis. Why specifically spend the winter in Nicopolis? Now remember, Paul is always a strategist. He's always thinking, how do I advance the gospel for the kingdom of Christ? Here's what we know about Nicopolis. If you look at a photo of it today and you look at a summertime photo, it looks like the Bahamas. I mean, it looks great. Crystal clear Mediterranean blue ocean, wide white beaches. But what you notice is there are no palm trees. There's just rocks outcroppings because they have really, really harsh winters there. As a matter of fact, in Nicopolis, if you were there because of sailing business or you were a freighter moving freight in and out to the, to the nation of Greece, if you got caught in a winter storm, chances were pretty good you were going to spend the entire winter in that town called Nicopolis. And this happened season after season after season. Individuals who made their living on the Mediterranean Ocean and the Aegean Sea would head to Nicopolis because it was a port city, a city of refuge. And then when the winter storms hit, they were socked in for the winter. There was no advanced weather forecast. And so Paul, understanding that people from all over the known world would come to Nicopolis, probably was setting up a base of operations there. And so he's encouraging Titus, hey, as quickly as you can, make every effort to get here. Come on and join the gang. 
We're going to do our work here. Now, we understand that most likely this is where Paul was arrested from. Nicopolis, it appears, is where he was arrested and taken to Rome and beheaded for the name of Christ. Verse 13, I see some more of Paul's characteristics. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. I promise no lawyer jokes this morning. I'll avoid that. Uh, well, lawyers need all the help they can get. We see that he mentions them first. So he says, help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. So make sure they have what they need. Make sure you've given them everything. Outfit them. You know, this is a characteristic of the early church. The early church was really good about watching out for people's needs, looking for who is in ministry, how can we fund them and keep them on their way. So he says, outfit them so that they can continue on their journey. Apollos is an individual that we've heard about in Scripture. If you look at Acts, you understand he was a man who was powerful in preaching. As a matter of fact, specifically, we're told he was mighty in the Scriptures. That's the way he's referred to in the book of Acts. Look with me on the screen at Acts 18.24. This is speaking of Apollos. He's fervent in spirit, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Wouldn't you like that for your legacy? I would. I'd love to have that on my tombstone. Speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. This guy has a great heritage. And so Paul's saying, outfit this guy, equip him, send him on his way. Most likely, Apollos is the one who carried this letter from Paul to Titus. Paul finishes writing it, blows the ink dry. Maybe he reads it to the congregation, rolls it up in a scroll, gives it to Apollos, and sets him off across the Mediterranean Ocean. And Apollos most likely handed this letter to Titus. And so he reads it and says, fund him, give him what he needs, send him on his way for ministry. Now we see here, just as it ends up, this P.S., it's kind of like Paul forgot something, and so he throws it in in verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Six times, if you go back through the book of Titus, you're going to see that Paul commended the church to be engaged in good deeds. Why? Not just because it advances the kingdom, but also because we develop our own walk with Christ. We get to develop in who we are as we serve other people. So Zenos and Paulus, he's looking back at them saying, hey, these guys have needs. By the way, Titus, fund these guys. Tell the church they need to engage in good deeds. Remind them of the privilege they have of helping out. He says they must also learn. The word that's used there is montano. Look with me up on the screen at the definition for that. To learn through instruction experientially. So how do we learn experientially? By doing. We learn by putting our hands to work, doing good deeds. So he says montano, teach them new hope. Don't ever be found unfruitful but rather, Montano, learn experientially, dig in, get involved. This is how we represent to the world that we're living the transformed life. Remember that big word we looked at last week, palingenesia? Palin meaning from above, genesis meaning the new birth, the new beginning. You put the two together, new life, new beginning from above, palingenesia. It means the transformation. So we're living out the transformation. That's what the world sees when they see us. That's why he says, engage in good deeds. Here's the truth, church. It is not possible for a single pastor 
or even a team of pastors to take care of all the needs of a growing congregation. And so we're told for the entire church to jump in, use your hands and dig in. Not only because I don't have enough time, but you have gifts that I don't have. You have abilities that I don't have. You have gifts and abilities that Michael and Gary don't have. There's things that God has equipped you to do if you walk in the power of the Spirit to be able to serve this world around you. And so here's an opportunity for you to jump in. This morning, after the service, if you want to, when we're done singing the last song, there's going to be some people in the cafe that represent this ministry that we work with called Sparrow's Nest. Sparrow's Nest, you might be familiar with if you've been at the church very long. We've explained it to you before. It's a ministry to single moms, single moms who in some cases are homeless. This particular week, we happen to know of a mom who's homeless, and we have a home to move her into. Sparrow's Nest takes care of all the organizational details. What we need to give them are laborers to work. We already take care of one mom and her situation with her children. This is our second opportunity to do this as well. It might involve financial counseling. It might involve helping to teach her how to shop better. It might involve helping her to clean her house. But the house she doesn't own yet, we're going to move her into, and this Sparrow's Nest mom is going to have an opportunity to earn the right to own her own home. So the church is invited to engage that way. So if you go into the cafe after the service and you want to do this thing, only if you really feel God pressing you to do it, you can engage in good deeds in just that one area. And you can see Jim Schoen or Larry Brown will be in there or Chris Schimke, and they'll give you more information just to give you some details. It may not be in that area. It might be serving in the children's ministry. It might be helping out in parking control. It might be some other way of serving the community. But this is what we're commended to do so that our church will be a fragrant aroma to the world looking at us saying, they're not just growing in number. Man, look at the love of their hearts. Most people are really generous with what they do with their time. This is why we're commanded to do this. So here's how it wraps up. Verse 15, all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. I'm kind of picturing this like a team conference call. Paul's got all the people gathered around him. There's Tychicus and there's Apollos and Artemis and Zenos the lawyer. You even got the lawyer in the room. And he, he writes this last detail down. And he says, all who are with me, greet you. Greet those who are part of the faith. See this community spirit? He's a team player here. So Paul really wants to see the church succeed. And 2,000 years later, we're reading about things that apply to us the same way it applied to them. I hope this journey has been really helpful for you looking through this story. So as we see what elders are supposed to look like, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and now we see how we're a fragrant aroma to the world watching us. That's why we studied the book of Titus. In a couple weeks, we're going to jump into the letter of John, and we're going to be looking at the life of Jesus Christ, and it's an amazing, amazing journey. I'm looking forward to doing that with you. In the meantime, why don't you take a minute and just pray with me before we step back into a worship song. Father, I thank you for um, placing on my heart the desire to work through this letter to Titus that you have a purpose and a plan for your church. You didn't just cause it to launch and then let it go. You actually have structure. And you are the God of structure. You're the God of organization. You like systems. And you've shown us what 
your system is for a smooth, strong, functioning church. So, I, God, I, I would ask this as new hope continues to grow, as you bless us as a community of Christ followers, that you help us not to forget these things that we've looked at in this letter to Titus, that we would always be faithful to have strong, theologically sound leaders in place. God, that as older men and older women and younger men and younger women, that we would be a fragrance to the body of Christ, that we would live out the principles that you've shown us in this chapter 2 thing. And God, as we look at chapter 3 and we see that you have a complete purpose for this, that we would be an aroma to the community, to the greater metro area of Lansing. God, we ask that as we seek to do that, you would bless it. That's what we really desire, Father, that your kingdom would be advanced. And so as your people, we come before you asking that you would use this time that we spent over the last seven weeks for the advance of your kingdom, for the glory and the honor of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.